Did you ever stop to think about the greetings you use to acknowledge someone? When we meet someone new, we often ask, what do you do? The interest in what they do rather than who they are says something about us. As does asking a friend or colleague, how are you? Without really pausing to listen to the answer or really even caring about it. Well, a greeting is just a short piece of conversation. It's a barometer, a proxy of sorts, that gauges the depth of the concern that we show for others. And in turn, that concern determines the relationships we form and how those relationships affect business performance. Our well-being is linked to the bottom line. Have you ever admired a leader and wondered just what it is that makes her who she is? How he came to embrace the things that advanced him? Welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we look at the principles that define success. This is a show for leaders at all stages of their careers who aspire to understand what it truly means to be a leader. And who is a leader? Dolly Parton said, If your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you are a leader. Together, we'll explore key principles, not only in the sense of fundamentals, but also in the ethical sense, the habits, character traits, and virtues that form the backbone of leadership. Principles that are just as relevant and essential in the 21st century as they were in the first century. This is Timeless Leadership. Hello and welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we explore the principles and virtues that accompany successful and admirable leaders. Thank you for considering this show worthy of your time. It's my hope that we provide the quality of conversation that keeps you coming back episode after episode. Now, feel free to listen and follow Timeless Leadership on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on. And of course, if you're not yet subscribed to the Timeless and Timely newsletter, where I regularly write about the intersection of leadership, communication, and history, check it out at TimelessTimely.com. This week, we're talking with Jen Fisher about well-being. Jen Fisher is a leading voice on workplace well-being and creating human-centered organizational cultures. She frequently speaks and writes about building a culture of well-being at work and serves as Deloitte's chief well-being officer in the United States, where she drives the strategy and innovation around work, life, health, and wellness. Jen is the host of Work Well, a podcast series on the latest work-life trends. She recently co-authored with Ann Phillips, Work Better Together, How to Cultivate Strong Relationships to Maximize Well-Being and Boost Bottom Lines. 
Jen is a healthy lifestyle enthusiast and seeks to infuse aspects of wellness in everything she does. She believes self-care is a daily pursuit and considers herself an exercise fanatic, sleep advocate, and a book nerd. As a breast cancer survivor, she's passionate about advocating for women's health and sharing her recovery journey. Well, Jen, Sawubona. <laughs> I don't know Evo if I'm... Sawubona. Oh, wow. <laughs> See, you're, you're the expert here. I didn't even pronounce it correctly. So what, is, what does that mean that we just said together? Yeah, so it's um, it's actually from uh, uh, Susan, Dr. Susan David, who wrote the book Emotional Agility, and she's kind of one of my you know personal well-being heroes or gurus, if you will. And um, we quote her a lot in in our book, Work Better Together. But Sawabana is a is a Zulu greeting. She's South South African, and the literal translation means I see you. And then um, Yibo Sawabano means I see you seeing me. And so it's really about seeing each other and, you know, in our full humanity as who we are as human beings and, and showing up uh, for one on one another and really being there for one another. And that's a, a huge theme uh, throughout the book, Work Better Together. And so it just fits so nicely into, I think, what we were trying to communicate about about the workplace and and also um, really about our own personal well-being because I think when we think of wellness and well-being, our relationships in our life, you know, we talk about exercise and we talk about nutrition and we talk about sleep and we talk about all of those things which are really important, um, but we often don't think about the impact that um, negatively or positively that the, that, that the relationships have in our life and the impact on our well-being. Yeah, absolutely. And there's there's a lot to unpack there. And I want to make sure we get to uh, all of that because, you know, you, you raise some really great points about the book here. And to me, the book comes at... Uh, the perfect time. You know, here, <laughs> here we are in the midst of or at the end of, depending on how you're viewing Hopefully. it. Hopefully, yes, fingers crossed. <laughs> exactly, at this pandemic. But um, talk to me about the inspiration, the drive behind wanting to create this book, because I know these things take years. Um, I'm sure this started before the pandemic was even a thing. Yeah, it definitely did. Um, so my co-author on Phillips and I, we actually, um, you know, we're both passionate about the topic of relationships and in particular, the topic of relationships at work, because it's, you know, kind of been a long debated uh, a topic, right? Should you have friends at work? Should you not have friends at work? You know, when you have friends and you care about people, then that introduces emotions into the workplace. And is, you know, is it appropriate to have emotions and show emotions in the workplace or should you check them at the door? Um, you know, we've all kind of heard those things probably throughout our careers. And so, um, you know, she and I uh, got connected through a, a mutual leader and mentor of ours and um, just, you know, kind of developed and, and maintained a relationship and with one another. And, and you know, she's a, a technology researcher and um, I'm very passionate about the topic of technology and well-being and how can we use technology to enhance and augment our humanity and our well-being as opposed to having it detract. And so 
we had a lot of conversations um, through the years about this. And a couple of years ago, had the opportunity to give a presentation at WorkHuman, which is a large um, HR conference, one of the largest um, and one of the best, in my opinion. <laughs> and um, really, we weren't um, aiming to write a book on the topic. We just wanted to give a presentation. And we gave a presentation and a uh, publisher and editor uh, was, were in the audience. And after the presentation, she came up to us and she was like, this is a fantastic topic. Have you ever thought about writing a book uh, on the topic? And we kind of looked at each other and on my co-author, she had just finished writing her first book and I had never written a book. And we were like, no, not really. But, you know, we kind of exchanged cards and told her that we would give it some thought. And, you know, in truth, on said to me, like, I'm not ready to write another book. I just finished my first book. <laughs> I need a little bit of downtime. And I was like, yeah, sure. No problem. And, you know, we went about life and work and, you know, everybody's busy and we kind of didn't really think about it until the editor came back a few months later and said like, Hey, you guys going to write this book? Um, and we were like, okay, this is the universe telling us that we need to write this book. And this was kind of late, probably November, October, November of 2019. And so in earnest, we like really got serious about writing the book in very early 2020. Like, you know, we kind of kicked off the new year in January, 2020, you know, writing the outline for the book and all that kind of stuff. And then of course the pandemic hit <laughs> in March. And, um, you know, it was really fascinating to, be writing a book about, you know, relationships and well-being in the workplace um, at a time when and, and the impact that technology has had on our ability to develop and maintain sustain and sustain meaningful relationships in the workplace at a time when, you know, all we had connecting us was our technology and we were all feeling and I think realizing maybe for the first time in a long time how important these connections and these relationships and true, you know, not digital connection, but like true one-on-one -on -one human connection um, meant. And so it was, you know, I don't think we could have planned it perhaps any better. I will say writing a book during a pandemic is a great distraction. <laughs> you know, it gave you something to focus on, but certainly what we were living through influenced um, what we, what we wrote and, you know, and perhaps even changed some of our perspectives um, potentially about technology and the value that it has in our lives. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. No doubt. I mean, it, you know, when you consider the, the whole process of writing a book, I know a lot of people, um, you know, they seem to just just crank out a book like it's uh, second nature. And there are yeah. other people that labor over it, like bringing a child into the world, which is no easy feat. Um, yeah. Ironic, though, that a book about well-being could actually help your well-being during a time when you needed it most. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and, and you know, it was because we wrote the book without really physically ever being together. I mean, the entire writing process was was virtual. Um, but, you know, it did it did bring, you know, a lot of meaning and purpose um, at a time when a lot felt out of control. And, you know, some of those, you know, people have asked me, like, what was the best, you know, what's the best and worst part of writing a book? And I think, you know, and I think on would agree, you know, the best 
part was, you know, some of those Sunday afternoons where we were just, you know, on on video together for several hours at a time and we just got slap happy and one of us said something, you know, and it came out wrong or who knows. And, you know, we just spent the next, you know, 15, 20 minutes like cracking up laughing and, you know, realizing kind of how much you needed that in your life really all the time, but certainly at a time when everything, you know, when the world kind of felt completely out of control and like it was falling apart. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you you talk about the, um, the importance of tech, technology during the pandemic, certainly. And these are all technologies that have crept into our lives regardless of the pandemic, things that we were doing already. And of course, businesses had dragged their feet for a long time, um, not allowing uh, uh, employees to work remotely because they wanted them on site. They wanted to see them there. They wanted to get this collaboration that we talk about that sometimes happens, sometimes doesn't simply because people were seated near each other. And it seems to me that, you know, now when home is work and work is home and, and the lines have completely blurred, that there is more of a danger now of technology overtaking our lives and of us not having that balance that, you know, people always talk about. So we're, you know, in some ways we're, we're more wired, but we're less connected than ever before. So can, can you talk about that kind of oxymoron that we're, we're in the midst of that technology is really at the center of? Yeah. And we, we do talk about that in the book because, you know, we are, we do have the ability through, technology to be connected more than ever before, but the, you know, the rate of loneliness is higher than it's ever been. Um, and, and so on the one hand, you know, it is a fantastic use of technology to be able to, you know, keep up with friends and family members that live across the world or in a different state, or, you know, I mean, there's, there are really positive uses for technology and neither Anna and I or we're not technology haters. Obviously she's a technology researcher. Um, but you know, what we advocate for is how to, how do we, you know, I, I say that right now our technology is using us. We're not using our technology. <laughs> and so how can we flip that paradigm and start to use technology in a way that actually augments our humanity as opposed to detracting from it. And so, you know, I think what we have learned, I mean, I think we knew, but I think what most people have experienced through the pandemic is that, yes, you know, it is great sometimes to be on video with people, but video doesn't replace being in person. Um, and so I, I hope that, you know, the recognition of that. So now when we're all out at restaurants, we don't look around and see groups of people at a restaurant together, but on their, on their electronic devices, but rather the electronic devices are, you know, in their po- in your pocket or in your bag where it should be when you are with other human beings, <laughs> um, you know, and so, and, and that's the reason for loneliness, right, is because we have been led to believe that, you know, digital connection can take the place of true human connection. And it absolutely cannot. There's a place for it in our lives. Absolutely. And there's a benefit to it for sure. But it can never truly take the place of true human connection. And that's why we're seeing so much loneliness, because people actually believe that 
all digital connection is 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 true human connection and and it's and it's not yeah and you know what's really interesting about this um jen is that yes we've replaced a lot of uh, in-person meetings with zoom calls uh, or other video calls um, but at the same time uh, people are getting burnt out from mm-hmm. video and i've seen this suggested by a lot of people saying turn off your video just yep. make it an audio call and you know we're kind of like two steps back to <laughs> you know to the old analog telephone going back to alexander graham bell and yet and I, I just had this experience the other day. I got a text from a friend, a, a very good friend, and we have major gaps in our communication because we're in different areas of the country. We have different priorities, whatever. But every time we do connect, we pick up exactly where we left off. Yeah. It's one of those friendships, yeah. right? And we were texting back and forth, and I said, you know what? Why don't we just have a phone call, a good old-fashioned <laughs> phone call? And we yeah. spent two hours on the phone together, just voice-to-voice. And to me, that did more than a FaceTime would. It did more than a series of texts or Slack messages would. So can you talk about some of the ways that people can use technology to their benefit rather than being a slave to it? Yeah, I mean, you're picking up on on so much there. So first of all, I think what we've learned throughout the pandemic um, is that, um, you know, relationships that existed pre-pandemic in in the workplace, but also in our personal lives, it is um, a lot easier to um, sustain those relationships in in an all digital digital or kind of all virtual world, um, regardless of kind of what technology you're using, whether it's a phone call, video call, et cetera. But, you know, if there's a foundation for that, a pre-existing kind of foundation for that relationship, it's been much, it's much easier to sustain that um, if you don't see each other in person, because you still have, you know, the muscle memory of, of, you know, being with that person. What we've learned in the workplace is that, you know, people that have joined during the pandemic, it has been much, much harder for them to develop those relationships in an all virtual environment. And so, you know, um, I think, you, you know, you, there's, there's a lot of talk, um, you know, in the, in the public arena of, you know, everybody, you know, we're all going to be, we're all going to stay virtual. We're all going to go back to the office. There's going to be somewhere in between that's hybrid. I do think that, you know, the future of work for many of us um, that have lived in this all virtual world is hybrid. Cause I think that there's always a need for huge, true human connection. Um, and I don't think that we can ever truly remove that for, for the reasons that I just stated, right? I mean, there's just, a, you, when you're looking eye to eye with someone, it's a very, it's just very different than, and, and it can't be replicated in video because, you know, your brain, there's tons of research on this, but there's a delay, <laughs> right? And so your brain processes it very differently, even though you think you're looking in someone's eye. But, you know, look, video is a great tool because it's important, especially as a colleague or a team leader to, you know, you can see facial expression. You can see if somebody looks particularly tired or just isn't showing up as themselves. And so there's always, again, a time and a place for all of these tools. What I like to say is, you know, video is great for, you know, small groups, you know, when you're actually on video. I personally see no use for a video call if you're presenting to, you know, if you have slides on the screen and everybody's the size of your fingernail and you can't really see them anyway, 
you know, why are we burning ourselves all out by being on video? Yeah. Um, to your point about an old fashioned telephone call. Yeah, it feels really old fashioned, but the truth is turning your back on your screen. I mean, some of the most meaningful conversations that I've had throughout this pandemic have been when I turned my back on my screen, I went for a walk, I sat down in my chair and I just talked to somebody on the phone. Because even if you're not on video and you're still in front of your computer, chances are you're distracted. <laughs> Multitasking, <laughs> looking, right? Yeah, and you're still <laughs> looking at a screen. And we, you know, we're, we're looking at screens more than ever um, in our lives, especially if you work on a, you know, on a screen all day, then you're dealing with screens in your personal life to connect with your family and friends. And then, you know, TVs still count as screens, people, (laughs) (laughs) you know, so whatever it is you're doing to unwind, even if you're reading on a, you know, on an e-reader, that is still, if it's backlit, it is still a screen. And so we're spending more time than we ever have before. And then I think also, you know, I mean, there's been a lot of talk out there, ideas around like, you know, if you used to commute and you don't commute anymore, don't roll out of bed and you roll right onto your laptop. You use that time for like a virtual commute, do something for yourself, go for a walk, get outside in nature, you know, sit with a warm cup of coffee or tea, read, you know, do something for yourself that you would have done you know, during that commute that potentially is a lot less stressful than driving in traffic. <laughs> That's true. That is you know, true. But, it, but we're not giving ourselves permission for things that used to break up our day, right? Even if we, you know, like we would drive into the office and then, you know, the, the ritual of walking into the office kind of signals to your brain okay, the workday has started. The ritual of walking out of the office and getting back in your car and driving home, even though some people might have checked their emails later on in that evening, it's still giving you these breaks in the day that we haven't, when we're working this all virtual world, for whatever reason, we have decided that we're not worthy and we don't give ourselves that permission. <laughs> no, that's, that's a great point. Um, you know, breaking up our day. And I'm a huge fan of walking. Uh, you yeah. know, the, the old phrase, the old Latin phrase, uh, what is it? Salvatore Ambulando, which means it is solved by walking. Yes. <laughs> Simply going out for a walk and, and not having your phone in front of you, maybe not even listening to that to that uh, podcast like this one um, <laughs> as, as a companion, but just taking the time to observe the world around you and to decompress like that, it can do it can do you a huge favor in the process. Um, same thing with books. You know, I, yep. I know this is an audio podcast, but you're, you see me on the screen if you haven't turned your back. Um, <laughs> I have a lot of books here. I hugely uh, believe in the power of reading. My mm-hmm. my newsletter is called Timeless and Timely because it's a combination of the modern and the historic. And how we actually combine those things, I think, is is the challenge for our ages. So um, this this notion of hybrid work is really yeah. really intriguing and and I think I agree with you this is this is where we're going here's here's the challenge for yeah. gen z's for the this new wave of people coming to the workforce either from high school or from college at this particular time um I can't even imagine how difficult it must be for them to understand a company's culture, to fit in with a team, to really feel like they are part of something versus, well, just kind of diddling around on a keyboard and throwing some reports over the the transom. Can you talk about how leaders ought to think about onboarding people, especially people that are new to an organization or younger people, 
and helping them to adapt to this new kind of lifestyle and to their company's culture? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's such a good question. And, you know, one that I will admit, I, I don't have all the answers to. I don't think anybody has all the answers to it. I think we're, we're still figuring it out. And I think, um, you know, for, for leaders, um, the most important thing you can do is ask your workforce, <laughs> you know, how, what, what Matt, you know, what matters to them in terms of, of coming together in terms of gathering in terms of, um, understanding, company culture and, um, team behaviors and norms and what, and what they want that to look like or what their expectations are around that. Because the simple act of actually asking, even if you don't do exactly what they say, getting their input gets buy-in, right? Like, oh, somebody actually cares about what I think. And you don't, you know, I mean, I think what I hear a lot from leaders is, well, if I ask and then I don't do it, isn't it better just not to ask? And, and actually the answer is no, <laughs> because simply by just because you ask doesn't mean you have to do it, but by asking, you're actually showing them that you value that their input and you want to hear what they have to say. And, and all of us on a human level, all we really want is to be seen and heard. That's what Sawabana is. I see you, I see you seeing me, right? <laughs> I mean, that is our most basic human need is to be seen and heard. Yeah. Um, and so, so that's the first thing, but I would say also um, it's, it's really important, you know, and I said it before, and at Deloitte, you know, we talk about this as mo we come together at the moments that matter. And that's kind of what hybrid means to us. And that looks different for every team across our organization. And so there is not a hard and fast rule that says when you are doing X activity, you have to be in person or when you're doing Y activity, it should only be virtual. It really is dependent upon the team and, you know, where the, you know, how dispersed the team is, what the type of work the team is doing. Is it very individual work and you only come together at certain points and certain milestones, or is it always very collaborative work? Those two, you know, the two answers about when do we co-locate and gather versus when we don't could probably be two very different answers. I will say that I think now and in the future, when we come together human to human and we gather in, you know, in a room or on, you know, on site together that I think that it's, it can, it should, I guess, should be, you know, much less about the work and much more about getting to know one another, developing relationships, developing meaningful connections, um, you know, experiencing the culture of the organization, um, as opposed to, you know, getting into a conference room or a quote unquote war room and just sitting there behind our laptops and doing work, <laughs> which we did. I mean, how many times in my career have I actually done that where we bear, you know, you're sitting across from somebody for nine hours a day and you barely spoken to them because you both have your head and your laptop. I mean, I think that is the thing that we've proven to your point about remote work. We can do remote work. <laughs> yeah. So when we come together 
and we make those decisions to come together, we need to make it really meaningful for people so that that's how they experience the culture. I also think for younger or newer employees, because it doesn't necessarily have to be younger employees, it could just be somebody that's new, you know, um, giving them a buddy, right? Having someone, making sure that there's someone that is kind of responsible for helping onboard them and acclimate them to the culture. Um, and is constantly checking in with them. Just a quick pulse pulse check, you know, not so it's like, oh, wow, this is another thing I have to do. But just, hey, checking in on you. Any questions I can answer for you? How can I support you? What are your concerns? I think one of the greatest tools for a leader is, you know, we in especially in a hybrid and virtual world, we need to we need to get comfortable with asking more probing questions. And that doesn't mean, you know, being obnoxious and asking about somebody's private life. But instead of asking, hey, how are you doing or how is your weekend, which we all just reflexively say fine and move on. <laughs> you know, ask deeper questions like what are your top three concerns? What's, you know, what are two things I can support you on? Um, you know, I love to ask people, and this is really weird, but I'm the chief well-being officer, so I can't. I love to ask people how they're sleeping <laughs> because nobody expects to be asked how they're sleeping. So first they're like, wait, what? What did you just ask me? So it kind of stops them in their tracks and they don't have that reflex. But then it it typically leads to a deeper conversation. Well, you know what? I'm not actually sleeping that well. Okay, why not? What's on your mind? Is there something I can help you with? Do you need support? Is it your workload? Is it something going on in your personal life, right? Depending on your comfort level with that person, you have to gauge how deep you can and should go. But, you know, asking these deeper questions and being vulnerable yourself um, as to what you're struggling with, um, how you're dealing with challenges, how you're finding joy. Um, you know, it doesn't always have to be the negative, like what I'm struggling with. Right. It could be like, you know, this is how I'm finding joy. I went for a great walk and I saw, you know, a beautiful butterfly and whatever it is. I love butterflies. So that's my example. <laughs> That's, well, I think that's, that's great. You know, finding the little things and, and so many, I think for so many years, we have trained leaders or expected leaders to have this kind of sheen of invincibility about them, yeah. uh, that they yeah. had all the answers and that they were always on and that they, they, they were infallible and, and on and on and on. And, and now, you know, thanks to Brene Brown, we're hearing more about vulnerability and, and we're hearing more about emotional intelligence and empathy in the workplace and a lot of the, the quote unquote softer skills, uh, that are really not soft at all. I mean, yeah, they, 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 hit, they hit at the some heart. of the hardest skills. Yes. Absolutely. No, Tom Peters and I had this conversation a few episodes ago and he's like, no, these are the hard things to do. They you are. Know? They're, they're, they're the things that we aren't conditioned to do naturally. Yeah. So, so two questions. One, I'm really interested in this title of chief well-being officer, okay, and, and how that came about. And two, how can any leader take on some of those attributes of being a chief well-being officer? Yeah, ugh, I love that. I love that second question. Um, so the, the first question, the title of chief well-being officer and, and how it came about um, is really a um, – at the intersection of, of, of my personal experience and my own personal need. Um, and you know, a, a need I saw within our organization at the time. And so this goes back about seven years ago. 
um, when I found myself in, in a state of complete burnout. And this was at a time when we weren't talking about burnout, <laughs> like workplace burnout was not a thing. Um, and so I really, you know, didn't know what I was going through. I knew that I was struggling with my physical health. I knew I was struggling with my mental health. I, you know, had been diagnosed with depression and anxiety. Um, but I, you know, this wasn't something that ta- was talked about. And I looked around and, you know, in a high, you know, when you work in an organization with a lot of high performers, I will tell you, one of the things that we're really good at is showing up and, you know, pretending like we have it all together, even when we don't. <laughs> um, and, and that has changed. That is something that has, I think, significantly changed in the workplace. And so I looked around and I was like, all right, well, I must be a failure because, you know, I, I look around and everybody else seems to have it together, but I don't. So there must be something wrong with me. And so I just kept powering through. I did not ask for help. And people ask me, what, what's one thing you would do differently? One thing I would do differently is ask for help. Um, I didn't ask for help because I was like, okay, nobody's going to understand or they're going to think that I'm, you know, I, I can't cut it or I don't belong here. You know, imposter syndrome, all of those things are very real. So I just kept powering through. Um, And I kept just telling myself, I'll rest on the weekend, I'll rest when this project's done, I'll rest, I'll rest, you know, and and rest never came until my body and my brain said, all right, if you're not going to do it, (laughs) we're going to do it for you. And so, um, you know, there came a day where it's, you know, I was alive and I was awake and my eyes opened and, you know, I could get up and get out of bed, but I really couldn't engage in life or work in any, I mean, there was just nothing left. And so I, you know, I was forced to take time off. I had to take a leave of absence. I had to get myself well physically and mentally. And in doing that um, and really rethinking kind of the role that I wanted work to play in my overall life versus the role that I wanted life to play in my work, (laughs) um, which is two very different things, you know, I became very passionate about it. And um, it was really something that I wanted to focus on or felt like I wanted to focus on as for my career. And that role didn't exist at Deloitte at the time. And so I went back to my leader and I thanked her for allowing me to take the time off um, to get well and to get better. And um, I told her that I was going to resign from the organization because this is what I wanted to focus on. And um, it was actually her vision, (laughs) probably more so than mine at the time, because she said, you're not resigning. You're not going anywhere. If you need this, then there are a whole lot of other people that need it, too. So, you know, go back to where you came from, do your research, put together a business case. Um, and that's what I did. I put together, you know, I did all that. It took a few months to do it. And I, you know, called up a bunch of our leaders at the time, um, our head of talent, our CEO. And I said, Hey, I have an idea. Give me 20 minutes of your time. Um, and you know, I want to walk you through it. And I basically said, you know, give me a chance to do this. And if it doesn't work, then I'll leave. Um, and that was about seven years ago, and I'm still here. <laughs> so um, I think it's working pretty well. <laughs> um, so that's kind of how it all came about, you know. But I, you know, also it, it was really, and, you know, because people often ask me about leadership support and how did you get leadership support and did leaders understand? And I think I was very lucky in that, you know, Deloitte is a professional services organization. We, you know, the success of our business is solely dependent on, you know, on our people and the brain power of our people and our people's ability to show up 
for our clients and deliver, you know, high quality work and, you know, and solutions that are innovative and creative. And if we don't have a workforce that's taking care of itself, we're sub-optimizing like everything that we stand for as an organization. And so, you know, having that as kind of the foundation of the business case, you know, it wasn't difficult for our leaders to wrap their minds around it. And also it's the right thing to do. I mean, if you employ human beings, you have to care about them. (laughs) You know, you just have to, in this age of like, you know, not, you know, like they're just here to get work done. That doesn't exist anymore. And it's not what the workforce is looking for in their employer. So, you know, we talked about these being soft skills rather than, than hard. And, you know, that, that terminology is, I call them essential. There you go. Essential (laughs) skills. So, how do you measure for success in something like this? Because I know at Deloitte, measurement is everything. You know, any, yeah. any kind of consulting firm, you gotta you gotta show your results. So, how are you demonstrating uh, the the impact of your work? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. So, like many large, I mean, there's a couple ways. Like many or, large organizations, we do. Um, employee sentiment surveys. Uh, we have one large annual survey that we do, and then we have a series of you know smaller uh, sentiment analysis surveys where we're regularly asking our people how we're doing in in these areas, um, and and what their experience is like. And so we you know we've created a culture at Deloitte where our our workforce is not shy or bashful about giving us feedback about what they want, what they need, what they expect. <laughs> um, and, and that's a really good thing, right? Because you, you know, you're, you're never, I mean, you may not be able to satisfy every single person or every single need. Um, but, but you are able to really identify, um, and have your workforce involved in the decisions that you're making about, you know, um, the benefits that you provide to them, the tools, the resources, and and also involve them. I mean, one of the things about culture, and I think my role in particular, I describe it as a cultural role because it's about changing mindset. It's about changing behaviors. It's about changing kind of really long-standing norms that are exist across all workplaces about you know, how we get work done and who we should be when we show up at work versus who we should be when we're at home, right? Like that doesn't, those things don't exist anymore. There's not, I'm not two people, I'm one person, (laughs) you know? And so there's not like a work gen and a home gen, like that's way too much to keep up with, (laughs) Um, you know? And so it it is, you know, so everybody is responsible for the culture that you want to create in a workplace. And so I think that we, we've done a particularly good job of, you know, making sure that everybody knows that, that they own a piece of the culture and the responsibility is, you know, is on them to get involved, but also to, you know, tell us, you know, tell us how we're doing, but also it's not just about complaining, but doing what you can do to, you know, to fix the problem. It's a very entrepreneurial culture. And I think my role is a perfect example of that. If you see an issue um, that's impacting our talent or our people or our talent experience, and you have an idea of how to make it better or to change it, you're not going to be told no. You're going to be told, you know, okay, go try it and see, you know, go see how it works, right? And so we have a big network, especially from a well-being perspective. So many people are passionate about it. We have a huge network 
of several thousand of our workforce that we call our well-being wizards. And the role of the well-being wizard is to really bring well-being alive in, you know, on the teams that they work in every single day. Because I can sit at the top of the organization and create programs and tools and resources, but if you're not if you're not feeling it in your day-to-day work life with us, then it almost doesn't matter what I'm doing. <laughs> um, and I think that that's a missing, you know, a lot of organizations, unfortunately, miss out on that. They, they, they spend a lot of money on tools and resources with all the right intentions, but they're not addressing some of the cultural issues that exist that are keeping people from taking advantage of these things. Boy, I can't tell you how much I agree with that, uh, Jen, you know, when I was uh, an executive at Ford and we, we were doing a digital transformation project, everybody was focused on the tools and the systems. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, when, when you think about digital transformation, it's really, it's triangle. It's, it's people, processes, and tools or people, processes, and systems. But it should be in that order, right? People, processes, tools. Yeah. But it, we have it completely reversed where everyone's focused on, oh, what system are we going to choose? What tools are we going to put in place? And you drop them in everybody's lap. And without the underlying culture to actually drive this change, or with another thing that I think is is, uh, endemic uh, at Deloitte, without a culture of trust, Mm -hmm. nobody's going to speak up, nobody's going to change, nobody's going to do anything differently than they had done before because they simply don't feel safe. Right. Yep. And we and we talk a lot about psychological safety in the book and, and how critically important that is for, you know, what we describe as trusted teams, which is kind of the, you know, where you get to, you know, sustainable results. You have a workforce that's engaged. You have a workforce that feels safe. And, and, and you know, psychological safety is huge for innovation. I mean, if people don't feel like they can speak up go against the grain or try something and fail, <laughs> then, you know, you have basically stunted any kind of innovation, really. Um, and, and you know, innovation is quite the buzzword, when it, especially when it comes to corporate America, right? Like everybody's innovative, but are they really? <laughs> exactly. And it seems to me that there is there's a, an interesting almost two sides of the same coin there when it comes to safety and uh, the connection to loneliness, it seems mm-hmm. like like the old cliche goes, there's safety in numbers. And yeah. if you see that there are people who are supporting you or there are other individuals who have spoken up and their heads haven't been chopped off or they haven't been fired, um, that leads you to say, huh, may- maybe there's something to this after yeah. all. And and th- this notion of loneliness as, as well as um, – Oh, I guess just just kind of uh, feeling disconnected um, probably plays a great deal of uh, plays a great role in that kind of uh, that kind of feeling, uh, that kind of culture. Uh, Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the most powerful tools that a leader has at their disposal, which actually doesn't cost any money and takes very little time <laughs> is, is role modeling the behavior. Right. I mean, and, and this goes as a call, like when I say leaders, right, of course there are organizational leaders, there are team leaders, but I think that all of us are leaders, right? We all have a leadership role, whether it's on our teams, whether it's on our families, whether it's in our communities, you know, we are all leaders in our own way. And, you know, I think, you know, one of the, the strongest, one of the best tools to create culture 
I mean, as a leader, you do have to role model that behavior because one of the worst things that you can do is, you know, talk the talk, but not walk the talk, right? Like say, you know, I, and, and I'm guilty of this, the story in my own life, you know, several years ago was, Hey, you know, to my team, um, you know, when you guys go on vacation, I don't expect you to check email, but when I go on vacation, I'm going to check email because, and I had my whole list of excuses, not because I didn't trust them, but because I didn't want to come back to an inbox full of emails. That was more stressful to me. I rather know what I, you know, I mean, I had my whole list of all the reasons why I thought that it was important for me to check email on vacation. Well, talk about psychological safety, uh, you know, on a va- when I was getting ready for vacation a few years ago, my team said to me, Jen, <laughs> you tell us not to check email on vacation. So listen, this is what we're going to do. We're not sending you a single email. <laughs> we're going to keep a spreadsheet of like all of the things that come up that we need you to weigh in on or that we weren't able to solve while you were out. And we're going to schedule time on your calendar, not the day that you come back from vacation. We're going to give you a day to kind of get back into the groove. But the day after that, we're going to schedule a good chunk of time on your calendar. And we're going to go one by one through all of those things that need decisions, you know, that need you to weigh in in order for a decision to be made. So, you know, they came up with a solution to say like, okay, you tell us this, but you don't, you don't actually practice it. And so we therefore feel like, you know, okay, we got to come up with a different solution. So Jen doesn't check, you know, email while she's on vacation. They were caring for my well-being, but they were also indirectly saying to me, like, you're not walking the talk. And so we're actually going to force you to walk the talk. <laughs> I love that. I, I love, first of all, I love that they, they actually came up with a solution for you, uh, but that you were all kind of self-aware about it. I mean, it oh, takes a great yeah. deal of uh, emotional intelligence to get to that point. Well, it does. And, and I mean, I think to your point, right, that they came up with a solution. A lot of times I, when I talk to people, they're like, well, what if my leader, I don't think my leader cares about well-being or my lead, you know. And so one of the things I tell people is, first of all, leaders are people, too. <laughs> right. Leaders, whether they show it or not, they're struggling with the same things that you're struggling with. It's just that sometimes leaders have been taught to, you know, to not show it. Right. Or they don't feel they don't feel comfortable being vulnerable and everybody has a different comfort level. But, you know, if you want to talk to your leader related, you know, something related to well-being or really any topic, instead of coming to them with just what you think the problem is, come to them with some answers. Like, this is how I think we can solve it. And if you still don't feel comfortable, talk to a few of your teammates, right? And say, hey, you know, do you think this is a problem? What do you think some solutions are? Would you be willing to go to Jen with me so we can collectively talk to her as a group and provide her with, you know, what some of our perspectives are, but also some solutions? Because most of the time when you do that, you'll realize that it's not that the leader doesn't care. It's just that the leader is really busy and probably doesn't actually have, you know, the capacity to come up with the answers. And so they're very grateful that you have not, you know, it's not just about pointing out the problem, you know, that you've come up with some solutions that you want to try. And so usually I'm not saying hundred percent of the time, we never guarantee anything, but usually when you come with some solutions and when they did, they came to me a solution. I mean, I, you know, you feel called out, of course. Right. I was like, wow. Okay. 
<laughs> but at the same time, I kind of had to laugh like, wow, you guys like really put a lot of thought into this. And so and then I didn't want to let them down. So I was like, all right, I got to not check email because if I screw this up, they're going to be really disappointed in me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think, you know, there, there's uh, responsibility on both sides there. That, yeah. That's really yeah. interesting. Um, it reminds me of a time uh, when I had a leader who uh, insisted that the speed of response to his email was not mm. indicative of how he valued an employee. Okay. <laughs> but he would sleep in two shifts. He would do like one sleep from like nine o'clock to like midnight or one in the morning. He'd get up and he'd check emails and it was a global company. So he was checking from all around the world. And just because he was up and available, he would shoot off emails as it came into his head. Mm. And I'm a night owl. And I would see some of these emails come through and he would say, again, it's not that you respond at one in the morning when I, when I send the email out. Um, but the tacit understanding was that he did appreciate people that gave it their all and that were up in, at crazy hours and responding to his emails, even though he said he didn't. Right. Mm -hmm. So there was this mismatch there in terms of yep. the expected behaviors and, you know, as you say, walking the talk right. and, you know, now we have the ability to program emails to go out at a certain time if we want to. So yeah. e even if that is our work style, even if we want to get work done at one in the morning, we tell people, don't answer me at one in the morning. We can say, it's on my mind now. I can handle the email and I can program it to go out during regular office hours. And boy, there's a great solution for everybody. That's that's an example of you know finding some kind of technological solution once again right. whether it's an Excel spreadsheet or an email timing system to <laughs> uh, to take care of that. So yeah, but you know those are those are um, you know very I think basic basic uses of technology that enhance our well being and actually make us better humans. Right? They make us more likable. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, yeah. and 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 to me, being more likable. Um, whether it's, you know, maintaining or establishing a friendship at work or, uh, like you mentioned before, having a, a buddy system. You know, I think you, you mentioned that, um, yeah. in your, in your book, you mentioned only 19% of people in the workplace have a, uh, have a buddy, okay. have, have a, yeah. whether it's a mentor yeah. or a colleague or somebody that can help them through. And, um, only one out of five people have a, a best friend at yep. work. So it really is hitting a lot more people than we think it might. It, it, yeah, it absolutely is. And I mean, I think to, to your point, you know, before also, I mean, one of the things that, you know, m most people have heard by now, but that we talk about in the book too, is that, you know, people and, 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 you know, especially now as we think about what's going on with the rate, the great resignation and the, mm. re the reason behind the great resignation is, you know, people don't leave, organizations, people leave bad leaders. <laughs> um, and so leaders are being called upon more than ever to, you know, these essential skills that we are talking about um, are the leadership skills of, of now and in, in the future, um, probably more so than, than ever before, because people are looking to connect with their leaders as human beings and they, they want more out of the work. You know, they're not, 
coming to work just to do work, but they want more out of out of the organization that they work for. But, you know, nine times out of 10, when somebody leaves an organization, they're not, the organization is an inanimate object, right? right. <laughs> they're, right. they're leaving the, 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 the bad relationships or the bad leaders that they work for. And so all of us that are in leadership positions really need to take a good hard look at um, the things that we're doing unintentionally most of the time. I don't think that people intentionally try to be a bad leader um, that, that are causing harm, you know, that are that are making our workplace not that great place, not not a great place to be or not a great place to work. Um, you know, and, and I in the book I, I talk about a few um instances, you know, where, where, you know, I kind of realized that, you know, that, that I wasn't being a great leader. And as I reflect and look back, I, you know, I understand why some of the people that left my team over time, um, you know, many years ago, I left my team because I probably wouldn't have wanted to work for me either. Right. And so, but that's hard, right? Like that's really, (laughs) that's a really hard, um, exercise to go through. But look, we're all human. It doesn't mean you're a terrible person. It just means that we all have um, the the need and the capacity to grow and, and be better and, and be different. And, you know, some of that comes with time and experience, but some of that, some of it, I hope some people don't have to learn the hard way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So as you think about whether it's individual leaders or uh, entities, wh- how do you help them craft a uh, a well-being program? What what does a well-being program look like to somebody in a leadership position? Yeah, and you had kind of asked this before, kind of you know how can every leader you know take on some of the the you know the the qualities or kind of create capacity to be kind of a chief well-being officer, and and I think that that's exactly what is needed. Um, you know, it's, it's fantastic to have somebody in a role like mine, um, that is, you know, solely responsible for creating programs, tools, and resources and helping to, you know, change the culture and create that mindset and behavior change. And I think that it's absolutely needed, but I can't do it alone. (laughs) Um, and you know, um, the health and well-being of a workforce is not the sole responsibility of any one person or of just human resources. And I think historically it has been thought of in that way, but that every leader across the organization does have some responsibility in um, helping to create and sustain you know, the, 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 the well-being, the culture of well-being in that organization. And so I think some simple things that, that leaders can do, and we've touched upon it, you know, when you talk about behaviors and norms, I mean, just simple conversations that leaders can engage their teams in. What do we want our team behaviors and norms to be? You and I talked about work styles. So what do we want our standard working hours to be? Is it, you know, even if we're working across time zones, is it, you know, nine to six or eight to five or whatever it is where we can all generally be online and kind of generally be expected to respond within a reasonable amount of time. And you should probably define reasonable amount of time, because as you and I discussed, for some people, reasonable is 10 seconds and for other people, it's, you know, 10 hours. (laughs) Um, But what does that look like for our team? And outside of those standard working hours, how do we get in touch with each other? Let's not leave it to email because then everybody feels like they constantly have to be connected to email. And we know the down 
the downside that that the impact that that's having on all of us. So is it picking up the phone and calling? Is it, you know, using texting or some other sort of collaboration platform that people can turn notifications on for that, but turn notifications off for email? Um, You know, things like, do we want to all agree to step away from our laptops for lunch and give ourselves permission to, you know, eat lunch in a different room or go for a walk? How do we want to handle learning and development? Do we want to do it collectively as a team? Do we want to do it individually and kind of share with one another on a regular basis? I mean, there's tons of behaviors and norms. You know, one of the ones on my team is what we talked about around, you know, vacation and people taking time off, but being very intentional when somebody's out for you know, extended period of time and on vacation, being intentional about removing them from all of the email traffic so that when they do get back, they don't have this deluge of emails that they have to go through, but instead, you know, helping them reacclimate so they can go out on vacation and feel like the team has their back and come back and not be completely stressed out because they're buried under 6,000 emails, but that they know that the team's going to bring them up to speed. That's an incredibly powerful behavior and norms and behaviors and norms. And so, I mean, there's thousands of them and they're going to look different for every team, but that's something that every team leader can do. And it really opens up the conversation um, and creates a safe space for people to talk about things. And I think you try things and if they don't work and people are like, eh, it's not having a big impact, let's do something else. Then, you know, no harm done. Right. It's like we're trying things to, you know, constantly improve and get better. Absolutely. Final question, Jen. What is your favorite way to assure your own well-being? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I kind of my personal well-being mantra is eat, move, sleep and find joy. Um, and I am by no means perfect, but I strive each day to eat some nutritious food, not all the food that I eat is nutritious, but some, (laughs) Um, get some movement in my day. I, you know, for me, I am one of those people that loves to work out. I work out not just for my physical health, but for me, it's actually much more for my mental health on the days that I don't work out. I'm you know, not nearly as engaged and my anxiety levels are typically pretty high. And so, um, but that looks different. Sometimes that's going for a walk. Sometimes that's doing, you know, a high intensity interval training, you know, session in the gym. And so I really kind of go with how I'm feeling that day. Sleep, um, if you know anything about me, uh, you would know that I'm a huge sleep advocate. I do not negotiate my sleep no matter what. (laughs) Um, If I'm, you know, out with friends, they are out with my team, they know, actually my team will send me to bed if it gets, you know, much past 830. They'll be like, Jen, it's, you know, it's past your bedtime because they know what it's like to work with Jen who hasn't been well rested. So I don't negotiate my sleep. And then I think finding joy is probably the most important one, right? Because especially in the world we live in today, it's so easy to get sucked into, you know, the negative 24 seven news cycle. But if you step back and you pay attention there's a lot of really great things that are still happening in the world. And so taking time to appreciate those and, you know, whether it's playing with my dog and something silly that she did to, you know, something heartwarming that, you know, a story that I read or, you know, something like that. I love to read. Um, Reading is a huge outlet for me and my well-being. So um, making sure that you're taking time each day, even if it's five minutes um, to to find a little bring a little joy um, into your life. Excellent advice all around. Well, the book is Work Better Together, How to Cultivate Strong Relationships to Maximize Well-Being and Boost Bottom Lines. 
by Jen Fisher and Ann Phillips. Jen, thank you so much for being here with us on Timeless Leadership. Absolutely. It was such a great conversation. Seeing others is an essential part of ensuring their well-being. Together with recognizing the need in ourselves, we have an opportunity to make the connections and deepen the relationships that matter most. Thank you for joining us and for being an advocate for timeless and principled leadership whenever and wherever you find it. I'm Scott Monty. Until next time, may you dream more, learn more, do more, and become more. For you, our leader.